Well, I, uh, I always get the, the New Year's sermon. I think at first it was because I, they knew most people would be gone at this point, but now I call dibs on it because I just love this. Uh, I love this, this time to be able to remember and to look forward with you all. So, uh, and plus we're in Revelation 21, which is a pretty amazing uh, passage this morning. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this time in the Word with you this morning. I think we all look forward to stuff. I know we all look forward to stuff. I don't have to think about it. I know we do. I think about this a lot in student ministries because I think there's even more events in a young person's life that they're consistently looking forward to. It's like built into their life at a young age, right? I mean, like, I think about middle schoolers. They're constantly looking forward. I mean, 13th birthday, that's a huge landmark. Who didn't, doesn't remember looking forward to being a teenager uh, or to being in high school? Who doesn't look forward to um, getting their driver's permit or their license or turning 16 to turning 18 to graduating? I mean, everybody. Everybody looks forward to stuff, though. Think about college students, you know, thinking about where we're going to go to school, thinking about maybe looking forward to being in a relationship, looking forward to graduation, looking forward to getting married, and beyond, you know, thinking about having a family, finding a house, looking forward to vacations, looking forward to having a family, looking forward to um, the, you know, future careers and retirement and grandchildren. And everyone is looking forward to something. And you're probably looking forward to a number of things this next coming year. And all those awesome things we just talked about will take place in this church and some people here. You will all witness those things. We've all got those things we're looking forward to. I mean, we're looking forward not just to a new year, but a new decade. Think about how many of those things will happen in this next decade. But some of us, too, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's not just positive things we're looking forward to. We anticipate a lot of hard things happening in these next, this next year, this next decade, as we look forward. We've been thinking about as much as changed this last decade in our lives. So I think it's fitting for us to finish this decade here in Revelation 21 together. And as we look forward to the next year, to think about not only those things we're looking forward to, but how in all those things we can look forward to the conclusion of all things. The hope of all things in Revelation 21. So turn there with me. We're going to be in Revelation 21, 1 through 8. So... We're in a sermon series right now. This is the last of the sermon series, God With Us. We've been going through it this Advent series and talking about how God was with us in the garden and there's been separation and how through the entire narrative of the Bible, God is moving things back to being with us and he's working to be with us. And, you know, Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. And the fulfillment of all of those promises of God being with us ends us here in Revelation 21. The end of the book of Revelation, which is a, a whole book that that has a lot going on before Revelation 21. It's a prophetic vision of Jesus by the Apostle John. And it's for specifically seven churches. And some of these churches, they're suffering. They're being persecuted. And the message that Jesus has for those churches is, hold on, I'm coming soon. And some churches who've lost their vision, who are doing a bunch of stuff, but they've lost their true love in Jesus. And so from there, from that encouragement, he goes on to tell all of these end times uh, prophecies about 
wrath and about uh, justice and about uh, how things will unfold and about glory. And it ends here in Revelation 21 in, our, in the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. This is the conclusion not only of the book of Revelation, not only of the New Testament, not only of the Bible, but the conclusion of all events in all of history. So I don't know if that makes it important enough to pay attention to, but everything of all time points to this moment. So we're in Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Read with me. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murders and the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of God. So, in Revelation 21, how we take the hope that we see in this passage and look forward to it in everything that's coming in this next year and in our lives. First, we look at the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, because that's where the passage begins, so that's where we should begin. It says, Then we saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And then in verse 5 it says, He was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. So there's a new creation. And the first thing that happens in the new creation is that the old creation passes away. And in Romans 8, it talks about this, that our creation right now is groaning out to be remade. That it's broken. And we see the brokenness in our world. In our physical world, we see the brokenness. I mean, there's I mean, pollution and war and all sorts of mishandling of the stewardship that God has given us, but that's not the brokenness of the world. That's not the primary brokenness. In Romans 8, it talks about the brokenness that the world is groaning to be remade from is the sin of man, our pollution. We pollute it. And it needs to be remade because we've scarred it with our sin. And it needs, we need a new world unmarked by that. And we should praise God thinking about that, that all of the pain and all of the sin that we have brought into this world as humans will be gone. It will all go away. It will all burn. And there will be something new and greater. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Notice this. He says, 
Behold, I am making all things new. Now, think about this. So in Romans 1.20, I think we're going to have it up here on the screen. It says, For the invis- his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So from what has been made, we can observe God's eternal power and divine nature by looking at them. How do we do that? Think about it. You're standing in front of a mountain. This enormous thing, just full of beauty. And you say, wow, what must have been for God to have created that? Or the Grand Canyon, or the ocean, or a beautiful creature. What must it have been like for God to create that? And we just think about how God created it. And that's enough to amaze us with his eternal power and divine nature. He says, behold, I am making all things new. In that moment, we will see his eternal power and his divine nature on display as he creates a new heavens and new earth. Whoa. Can you imagine we will all undoubtedly be amazed by something we see out in this beautiful world this year. And as you look at these beautiful things, be reminded in that amazement that, wow, God made that, you'll get to see him make the next one. You will also witness the brokenness of this world in many ways. And you will hear its groaning to be remade. And every time you turn on the news, you can be reminded of the pain and the ugliness and the disgustingness of sin and how it scarred this beautiful world. You will be reminded of it around almost every corner. But as you hear creation groaning for that to be made right, let it groan within you. Let it resonate. Long for your real home. Long for this new heaven and new earth. Let the brokenness of this world and the groaning of this world remind you that there is a perfect new heaven and new earth to come. So we look forward with a new heaven and new earth in mind. We look forward with the last wedding of all time in mind. So there's two people in a wedding. There's a bride and a groom. Now, This is quite amazing to me that we get to be the bride. And I'll talk about that as we go on. But let's talk about the bride for a second. Who is the bride? It's God's people of all time. It says in uh, the end of Revelation Revelation 21, 12 through 14, it says it it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, 12 angels, and on the gates were the names of the 12 tribes, of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and the west three gates, and on the wall of the city, it had, the tw- it had 12 foundations, and on them were the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So we see it's described with the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. So we see it's the people of God from all time coming together into this new Jerusalem. And what is the quality? What does it look like? What is the picture of this, this bride there? It is the storehouse of the glory of God. 
The first attribute that we would notice if we're looking at the bride is the glory of God. It says in Revelation 21.11, it says, having the glory of God like its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, as clear as crystal. And then later on in the chapter, it says this, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, talking about the new Jerusalem. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring their glory and the honor of the nations. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So the stardust of God's glory from all time. Everyone bringing in the glory of God from everything he's done in the world into this new Jerusalem, this new people of God, this bride, and it will be shining with God's glory. Remembering all that he's done. And we get to be the bride. Think about how amazing that is. Like, there is, I mean, if you're, I would just be honored to be at the wedding, to be in the audience. I would be extremely honored to be a groomsman. But that's, we don't just play those parts. There's the groom who is the lamb, and there's the bride who is us. That should put it into context. How big of a deal that it is that we are in the wedding. That the other person is the lamb. What a high calling. Man, as we gather together, and as we think about that day, that should lead us to spur each other on to something greater. That we're being washed in the water of the word right now, and that we're being transformed into that bride on that last wedding day. That should spur us on. And I'd like to think about it like this, too. Here in the church, we experience a, a taste of God's glory. A taste of what that will be. A big taste of it. We've just talked about it in our last sermon series about how the using of the gifts shows the activity of God in the church and, and the loving of one another. It's, it's, um, and in John 17, it's the, this way that we're supposed to know the love of God is in the community of God here in the church. But this is just a taste. Think of it like the Exodus. Like in the Old Testament, everybody when they were talking about God being a savior, a savior would say, and you rescued us out of Egypt. That was a big deal. That was God's salvation event in the Old Testament. Everybody would reference it. And we like, we like that story as well, the Exodus. But we see it as something different. We're like, man, that's cool because it points to Jesus. And we wouldn't just stop at the Exodus. There's something so much more great and so much more significant in Jesus than the Exodus. It's the same way right now. Like, we get a taste. Like, have you guys ever heard of LaCroix jokes? You know what I'm talking about? Like, LaCroix is like seltzer water that was driving in a semi-truck and passed through by another semi-truck that was carrying grapefruits. You know, it's just very faintly tasted. Or it tastes like somebody who had eaten a grapefruit a couple days ago burped into your seltzer water or something. You can barely taste it. Like, right now we're just getting the LaCroix. Okay, we're going to be getting the full concentrate one day. We're going to be getting the fullness of the, the sweetest taste of it all. This is just a little taste. And that this is just a little taste really encourages me to the glory that awaits. 
So there's the bride and then there's the groom, the lamb. The lamb that was slain. This is a loving picture of Jesus. The lamb that is slain for his people. This is a biblical picture that goes all the way back to the Passover. Even really back beyond that to when Adam and Eve were first given clothes. This is the one that sacrifices himself so that his people's sins are paid for. So at the lamb, at the, the wedding of the bride and the lamb, we will experience the love of Jesus more intensely and more personally than we have ever experienced before. We will be finally united with our Savior, the lamb who was slain. That's the name we'll, we'll call him around the throne. Like it says in Rome, uh, Revelation 5, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive all honor and praise and glory because you ransomed your people. I read this passage on the morning of my wedding. I went down to the, the park in Winona Lake and looked over at the lake and I opened up this passage and I read this and I thought, man, I'm going to have a powerful picture of this today. Because my wife is marked with the glory of God. She has a relationship with Christ, and I, we, we see, we, I see his glory in her and the way he's transformed her. And so I was anticipating that as I was going to see her. I've actually got a couple pictures here. So there's a moment here. I, uh, we did a, little, a first look. I'm standing, looking away, and I'm thinking of this passage. And my wife, in her beautiful wedding dress, approaches me. And she taps me on my shoulder. And I turn around and I see her. And yes, she's beautiful. And yes, I was overwhelmed by that. And yes, I was excited for my wedding day. But the thing that I remember most clearly from that moment, and that most clearly from the moment she's walking down the aisle, is that that's just a picture of a greater wedding day. And that is the best picture I get for my entire life. Those of you, us who are married, I want you to just think of your spouse right now. You're probably sitting with them. And just give thanks to God for this eternal picture of this hope that you will have in Christ. This wedding day, you have an eternal picture with you. And now, I recognize too that in marriage there's conflict and there's hardship and you, 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 it's not perfect. But in those moments of conflict and trial in marriage, we need to remember a couple of things. First of all, that we have the opportunity in that moment to exemplify the love of the Lamb who was slain, to lay down our rights and our, what we deserve and to sacrifice for our spouses to show them the hope that they will have in Jesus. And we also need to point them to the fact that we are not going to be fulfilled or fulfilling enough for them, and they are not going to be fulfilling enough for us. That they are a picture pointing us forward to that day. That is their greatest purpose, to point us forward to that day. The one who will fulfill us. The perfect spouse who will be everything that we need. 
So we look forward to the last wedding. As you go to weddings this year, I want you to think about that. I'm always the first one on the dance floor and the last one off at a wedding because I want to celebrate because I know when the lamb and the bride are, con- uh, are united, I am sure as heck going to be dancing. <laughs> I'm definitely going to be dancing at that wedding. For sure. Let's look forward to this day. So we have the last wedding of all time and we will be face to face with the Father. This this may be the pinnacle of the moment. Think about it. There is so much going on. The new creation of heaven and earth. The, The bride and the lamb are being brought together. I mean, so much is going on. And at this moment, there is a moment between you and God where he will call you son, daughter, and he will wipe every tear from your eyes. He will call us son. When I first read that, I just wept. I remember that. I was a senior in high school when I first read this passage because I had voided the book of Revelation because somebody had told me that it was too confusing or other people had told me it was almost like a horror story. And I had avoided it and I read it and I was like, this is the most hopeful thing I have ever read, that someday I will see my father face to face. And I have a great example of, a, of an earthly father, too. I, my dad is an awesome dad, and I know there's plenty out here who are sitting here. Maybe you're, you know, the kids in this room, look over at your dad. If you've got an awesome dad, give him a thumbs up. If you don't get a thumbs up, dads, I'm sorry, but... <laughs> so you've got... Those of us who have good fathers can recognize, man, this good father who is so much to me is only a shadow of the great father to come. He's only a mere picture of what is the true reality. And I recognize not everybody in here has that experience, has a, a good father and I know there's a lot of brokenness. I mean, I go in, when I go into the high school and I'm, I meet with students, most of the students I meet with come from broken homes, really broken homes. And most of the time, it's the dad's fault. And it's tragic. And, I mean, at least three of my very closest family members have been marked by broken marriages and it's it's devastating but that father then uh, that our broken fathers now should point us to the fact that there is a father who will be all sufficient who will fulfill everything we need that who will be faithful he will be kind He will be gentle. He will be loving. He will be everything that our earthly father has not been able to be. And he will never leave. He will dwell with us forever. Being sufficient for all time. Not only will he call us sin, but he will wipe away every tear. 
He will be as real and as tangible as any other person will be. And he will reach and touch your face and wipe those tears. And he will wipe away every tear. Every tear that you have cried, he will wipe it. The, every time you face the brokenness of this world and you have, and a tear has rolled down your face, our Heavenly Father will go back and in that moment minister to us in those moments in love and heal us because all of that has passed away. And it will be no more. So, with this incredible hope in mind, I think it's appropriate to ask a question, who will be there? Who will be there? So, as, the one, as this vision unfolds in front of John, he, he has so many things that he's seen so far that are going to happen, and then there's this instruction to him. It says, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And he said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give the spring of the water of life without payment. So the first person he addresses is the thirsty. The one who is dry and longing for God. And for the things that only God can fulfill. Now he's saying to John, remember, he's saying, write this down. So he wasn't just addressing people that were in the, the scene at the throne room there. He's addressing those who John is writing to. He says, if you're thirsty and you're reading this, and you're saying, man, I need this day to come, say, I will give you the spring of life without end. The spring of the water of life without payment. Come drink. The thirsty will be there. Isn't it just amazing and gracious of God to think about at that moment of time? <laughs> to think, John, you need to, you need to address the thirsty. Those who are longing in this world, address them and tell them, I can quench that thirst. He also addresses the conquerors. He says, to the conquerors... Uh, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. So I think it's important to ask, what does it mean, the one who conquers? What does conquering look like according to, this, to, the, to our hope? Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 56 will be up here on the screen. I'll read it for us. It says this. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. So I'll pause there. That's just quickly saying, on your own, you cannot do this. You cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot conquer. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on the immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law, and it finishes off 
by saying this. It says, But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the victory. And the conquerors conquer through him. That's and remember who remember who John is writing this book to. He's writing to people who are in trials. He, he said it's it's so bad for some, it's like they're at the very gates of hell. But he says, Conquer by holding on to me. Through me, you will have victory. You will be able to be my son. He gives them that hope. That's what he's calling them to. Hold fast to Jesus. And they're the conquerors over the grave. So all of us who have tasted this thing of death and who will taste this thing of death can know that the sea will be empty. That means that the sea will, all, that means the grave Everyone will come up out of the grave. It just says that in Revelation 20. It talks about the sea being the grave. It says the sea will be emptied. And then what does it say? In the first verse of 21, it says the sea will be no more. That the grave is done. That death is done. That we will have victory through Jesus. So the thirsty and the conquerors are there. And we cannot forget the most important person who is there. God. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end and everything in between. He says it is done. Meaning all of history, all of time, everything that he's done for all of time. And he says, I am the point. I was the beginning and I am the end and I am everything in between. I am the whole point. And not only that, but it says we don't even need a sun and moon anymore because God's glory will be our light. So not only are the nations and the people of all time, the redeemed of the saints, bringing the glory of God that he's shined on the world for all of time, but then we've got the endless fountain of God's glory, God himself radiating it out in our midst, overflowing with his glory and who he's done and what he will do for all of time. The greatest gift of heaven. And he says this, beautiful. He says, I will be their God. If you've been listening for the last month to our sermon series, you know how important that is. Because all of this, every word of Scripture, is trying to get us back to that. To make us right with God, and we will experience full rightness with God. This is the true fulfillment of I will be their God in this moment. Right relationship face to face with the Alpha and Omega. Who will not be there? Because we can't not notice that as we read this passage. That it goes with this tidal wave of hope that just rushes over us and then we see that there is a stark warning on the end of it. It says, but as for the cowardly, the 
the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So who will not be there? Those who are in their sins without Christ. If you look at 1 Corinthians 6, it gives a similar list to what we just saw here. And it says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were cleansed. What separates us from them on that day is the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And this, these are real people who will experience this. These are people we pass every day, real faces, who will experience this eternal torment. And there's maybe people, probably people in this room who will be the same. There's another side to eternity that is untold. That we know some of. But we don't know. We can't understand the intensity of the wrath of God poured out against his enemies. And we don't want to. And these are the people that that will be receiving it. They understand marriage. They've seen marriages. At least they understand creation. They live in it. They understand fatherhood. Everyone has a father. They have all the same signs and all the same needs pointing pointing them towards their need for this hope, but they don't have the hope. They don't have Jesus. And that's the only thing that separates us from them on that day. And that should break our hearts. There's a reason There is a reason that the one sitting on the throne tells us this now. That he says, write this down. Because we should know that those who don't have Christ will face the second death. Because they're without the hope that we have. I believe the heart of God is similar to to what Charles Spurgeon says in this quote. It says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions. And let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. There's a reason that we see this now. There's a reason the one sitting on the throne puts this in this passage. That we would be stirred to share the hope that we have in Jesus. Amen? And you know those faces. And it can, I know it can grow weary. And it can seem hopeless at times. Or you can feel like there's not much point. But when you look at the hope that we have, the certainty of the hope, and the grandness of the hope, how can we not? Let's lean on the one who has shown himself to us to show him to others so that they would have this hope. As we gather with our families this, these next few days and we remember the year and the decade that has passed as we look forward to the decade that comes and everything that will come in it. I want you to look forward to the joy and all the celebration and all the wonderful things that will happen. And I want you to look past that to all the wonderful things that's pointing towards.
I want you to look at the trials and the suffering that will come, and I want you to understand that there will be a healing and a Father that will wipe those tears away and to remember the great hope we have that this groaning will turn into a new heavens and a new earth and a new hope. And as we plead for the lost, let's remember the sweetness of the hope we have and the urgency we need to have in sharing it. Let me pray.